Hello everybody, Bradley here, and welcome back into Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. Just a quick warning off the top that this podcast does contain spoilers, so if you've not read the entirety of the Harry Potter series, all seven books, just know that this episode and most episodes will have spoilers ranging through all seven books, so just be a little bit careful, and also that this podcast contains adult content. This episode's not particularly bad, but you never know, every once in a while there's a little bit of swearing or something slightly lewd, so just be aware if this is playing around children, although I think you'll be fine with this episode. Otherwise, this episode's going to be a little bit different today. Connor is actually out of the game for this episode, and I have a good friend, Rachel, here to help us with Chapter 5, Diagon Alley. As far as I know, this is Rachel's first time being on a podcast. I could be wrong, but just be really nice. Rachel's awesome. Her insight in this episode is hilarious. We kind of dive deep into the stock exchange system in the Harry Potter world and how interest at Gringotts works. So a lot of fun discussions are happening. Just be nice, be kind. Sometimes it's weird when new people rotate through podcasts. I just want to make sure everyone is being respectful. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this episode and let's hop into Chapter 5, Diagon Alley. Chapter 5, Diagon Alley. For those of you listening who want a proper recap, feel free to IMDB this or whatever book thing is on the internet but my recap is Hagrid and Harry leave the Dursleys stranded on a rock after stealing their boat using muggle transportation they head to the leaky cauldron and into Diagon Alley Harry has many moments to settle into his fame and be enamored with all of the magic happening around him we stop to get some robes and meet a bit of a shithead Harry gets Hedwig and at the wand shop things get a tiny bit weird Harry struggles because people are expecting great things and he doesn't know anything about magic or Hogwarts or Quidditch or any of that and Hagrid at the and tries to hype him up before he goes back to the Dursleys. Now, joining me for this podcast is not Connor. We actually have Rachel here today. Rachel is a good friend who is also a super Harry Potter nerd. And so I just want to give Rachel a chance right off the top here to, to kind of give her Harry Potter bona fides so you guys don't send any emails about it. And then we'll we'll dive into chapter five. So Rachel, the, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. I hope you are doing well listening to us today. Uh, I have been a Harry Potter fan for, oh, I don't want to age myself, but it's got to be since I was like seven. So I guess almost 25 years. I can't do math. I like, I like but, that I don't want to age myself and then immediately and, and then quantify in, to the exact number how old you are. But, that, but the thing is that the math isn't even right, but that's fine. It's been a really long time. I read the books as they came out. I would dress up and go to chapters uh, and do the whole midnight release thing. It was the only uh, only time I was allowed to stay up until midnight when I was a kid. And Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. And then, you know, joined Pottermore when it came out cemented my status as a Ravenclaw, which was very exciting for me. Uh, although I recently learned that I'm the only Ravenclaw in my family. My siblings are Hufflepuffs. Yeah, your brother's uh, definitely a Hufflepuff. Oh, Abs- yeah. Absolutely a Hufflepuff. <laughs> very yeah. Badger vibes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not only a Hufflepuff, but like the symbol of a Hufflepuff. Oh, yeah. The leading... Emblematic. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Yeah. So, so for those of you listening, there's a few key differences here. Rachel is actually Canadian, and I'm Canadian. So you have two Canadians and two Ravenclaws. So the balance of power on this podcast is shifting rapidly. Uh, so if we make references to chapters, you might not know what that is. That's something we know what it is, but you might not. So just bear with us 
uh, as we don't have any Americans here to American translate things. In, in our money translations oh, yeah. in this episode, we actually have them in Canadian dollars as well. <laughs> so feel free, if you're not from Canada, to just do your translating as necessary to make things make sense for you. Uh, let's hop into chapter five, though, Diagon Alley. At some point in this podcast, I'm going to have to do a chapter ranking. It kind of just comes with the territory of doing a Harry Potter podcast. And I don't know where Diagon Alley would fit. But I, I want to say probably in my top six or seven chapters overall, this was definitely the chapter as a kid where I got fully hooked into the world. You're, you're kind of experiencing the magical world for the first time with Harry, and it's written in a way that you're, you're getting through a lot. We're going to a bunch of different shops. We're getting a bunch of different supplies. There's a lot of different lists. We're meeting a lot of people. And yet it doesn't really feel overwhelming. Like you, Harry makes a comment, I think, in Gringotts about wanting to have eight eyes or something. And that's just how you feel with this chapter. So just overall, before we kind of dive into each individual section, um, I just really love this chapter. What are your kind of overall thoughts? Yeah, I thought, you know, I would agree. Uh, I was talking about this earlier when I was rereading the chapter. I had forgotten what an effective uh, storyteller JK is in this chapter because we get very little new information in the form of straight exposition. We usually get information as it happens around Harry as an experience. And then even then when we do just straight up find out things, we're usually also getting it through someone else's perspective. So not, not only are we learning something about the world, we're learning about that character as well. So everything I find in this chapter is just so well organized to be accessible, but also really exciting. Because everything's new and shiny. Yeah, I would say the first two books of the series are just well-written in that way that they're accessible to 11-year-olds. Well, still, mm -hmm. like, now in my mid-20s, still, it, like, I still, reading Diagon Alley, don't feel like it's written for 11-year-olds either. Like, it ages timelessly, no matter. Really? Yeah, and so much fun. And you friend. get to go back and see things that you missed or you didn't appreciate. Like, I certainly didn't appreciate a lot of like the funny wordplay or the little references because i think it was seven when i read this for the first time absolutely absolutely what is your what is your alternate chapter title for this chapter okay it's really dorky but oh, go for it you're on a harry <laughs> okay. potter podcast i think that's true okay so i went with kind of the same theme as diagonally being called diagonally and i called this chapter orthogonally so <laughs> I had some help with this one from my brother. He's a Harry Potter nerd, but also a math nerd. And for those of you that are a little bit better than at math than me, you know that an orthogonal angle is a right angle. And so I thought it would be a nice way to kind of symbolize that Harry's life at this point is just taking a complete left turn. That's a deep and, cut. That is, right? a, that is a very <laughs> deep, 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 deep cut. That's I thought really though. hard about this one. That's good. I, I decided to go a little less deep on the cut there. I went with the wand chooses the wizard. I think I have a, just doing my alternate chapter titles for all the chapters, I kind of try and usually find something that sums up or like has a greater purpose to the overall story than just mm -hmm. the chapter. And I really think the wand chooses the wizard really sums up out of all the things we learn in this chapter that's kind of the big one that becomes a huge kind of story point that we return to as we go through 
the series. And it's something that mm-hmm. starts out here very simply with just the knowledge that the wand chooses the wizard, but you don't really learn much about it. And then as we read moment. through the story, it keeps expanding and you keep learning more. I have some problems with the wand lore in this chapter that we'll get to once we're at Ollivander's, but I think overall the wand chooses the wizard is a really good uh, summation of the chapter for me, especially thinking forward. Yeah, no, I think so too. And and the one she's the wizard, such an iconic line from the movies as well. Like that entire scene, I think, and I'll probably talk about it more when we get into it, but that whole Ollivander scene in the books and in the movies is just so whimsical and fun while also having, you know, just that little bit of seriousness at the end. It's just a tad like, hey, the, the other brother one killed your parents. Just a little, <laughs> just a little, just a tad of seriousness knocked off. It made me a little more serious. Yeah. Um, all right. We start this chapter with, I, I guess, I don't know how to talk about this whole thing. There's just the whole bit at the beginning where Harry and Hagrid are just ditching the Dursleys on a rock and stealing their boat. Which is awesome, and it's fun, and then they go, and I believe they use the London tube, like, like a bunch of muggles, and Hagrid's a little confused, yeah. and that's all fun. I, my, I just couldn't read this without hyper-focusing on this, the fact that they stole the boat. Vernon Dursley does not strike me as a man who can make a way out of that situation. I just want to know how the Dursleys get home. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't really a time of cell phones either, so did that rock have, like, cable? No, absolutely not. Call anyone? No, I think the whole point was um, that communication was n- not there. That was the they were they got there because they were running away from the mail, which was also dumb. Maybe Her- Hagrid used his uh, umbrella that's definitely not a wand. Oh, certainly sent not. Yeah. Back. Maybe he sent it back. But you're right. That is kind of a, he he goes and like mutilates Dudley. <laughs> right. And yeah. then abandons the family on a rock. Yeah. See you later. Yeah, if you if you look at this from the Dursley's perspective, they're awful people, but this shit is terrifying. Like by from from midnight to seven AM, their kid is mutilated and their boat is stolen and they're stuck on this rock. And I believe at the beginning they only bought like potato chips and stuff. I haven't read the previous chapter for a bit, but I don't think they brought rations. Yeah, no, just a complete hellscape for the Dursleys, who pride themselves on being so normal and then through just being so stubborn and refusing to just give Harry his letter, they just make their life absolutely insane. Yeah, it's definitely death by a thousand cuts, but you're kind of cutting yourself. It's not happening to you. You're just doing it to yourself. There's a lot of good exposition here, too. Um, We get a Cornelius Fudge dunk. um, We get a school supplies list. There's a lot of just little bits and pieces that are adding a little bit of of magic. And I've talked about this in the previous chapters, but the way she writes the magic is kind of additive that every Mm -hmm. new thing you learn kind of adds on to what you've already learned. And it it really helps it not feel overwhelming. Cause once we get into Diagon Alley, you're going to a lot of shops really quickly. You need a lot of supplies and like the robes need name tags and the hats need to be a certain pointiness and whatever the list says. But it never feels overwhelming because you're kind of just introduced to it slowly. So by the time you get there, you kind of got a heads up about what to expect. And I found that really helpful to just this little kind of funny bit of exposition on their way to the Leaky Cauldron. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really thought was neat, I guess, uh, was just even Fudge's introduction. Yes, it's a dunk, but Hagrid immediately sets up that there's a bit of a tension between Fudge and Dumbledore. So off the bat, as soon as you know about Fudge, you know that it's kind of like school versus government. And obviously that's going to come into play way later. 
Yeah, I believe I didn't write this in my notes. I also think I listened to this like two hours ago, so I should have remembered this. But I think <laughs> I think they um I think Hagrid mentions as well the statute of secrecy. Like it's the first time where we learned that if the Muggles were aware of the wizards, they want you know wizarding solutions to all their problems. And so you're kind of mm. learning that the Ministry of Magic is also in charge of enforcing this. Hence the brick wall and the platform at nine and three quarters and all of the other things that we're going to see in these three chapters and i yeah. think that's another good bit of additive writing like we're introduced to the fact that everything needs to be secret so when you get to the brick wall you're like oh that makes perfect sense that's just how they're keeping it secret instead of feeling like just another thing you have to learn yeah and i think especially for an 11 year old the simplistic way of explaining the ministry is that it keeps the wizarding world secret but we do get to know more about the ministry as we need to so as you say additive again yeah, the Leaky Cauldron is next. There's a lot of cool... Now, I I always wonder with, with JK, she's kind of an expert at foreshadowing, but I think with writing, like there there's true foreshadowing, like little bits and pieces that you're trying to put in to be noticed for a payoff later. But I think what JK is really good at, and the Leaky Cauldron scene is is just an expert example of it, is kind of just whenever she gets stuck in her writing later, she just kind of does a quick scan backwards of things she's already introduced to see if anything there could be helpful. In this case, Daedalus Diggle. This is just a dude in the Leaky Cauldron. And then I guess by book five, when you need to meet the Order of the Phoenix, he's now like he's he's just becomes part of the story later. So I love these little bits and pieces where there's a 0% chance when you write a character named Daedalus Diggle that you expect him to be important later or even oh, just a, a a character that returns. And yet, he returns multiple times, so it's a cool introduction here. Well, with such a fun name, Daedalus Diggle has to return if he can. That's true. At that is in, true. In a small in a small role. <laughs> what is your what is your opinion on the alliteration names? I think that needs to be on the, the I feel like on Twitter and stuff there's a lot of you either like the alliteration names or really hate them. Honestly, I love them. I think um it was something as a kid that I had a lot of fun with. And it's definitely like the naming in Harry Potter is such fun. I know like the alliteration, it could get a little repetitive, but I find it's only for certain characters like the professors. So you can identify them. Minerva McGonagall, Severus Snape, Corneas Quirrell. I had to look that up. I didn't know his first name. I didn't know until right now. I've never, this is the first time I've heard it. I got name. busted on it on a sporkle one time like, <laughs> what, 10 years ago. Oh, and no. I, I can never forget. So, so for those of you that didn't know, his name is Quirinius. Yeah. We're all learning this for the first time. You were the only yeah. one that, I guess if you've taken yeah. Harry Potter trivia and like lost money at a pub, you probably know. Cause that mm. would, that would have gotten me for sure. At a Harry Potter yeah. trivia. The, yeah, the, and... Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, the description of Coral here also is not flattering. It is a very no. weird description. And, it, like, scared of his students, scared of his own subject. And, and it it's interesting, because as this is happening, Harry's trying to reckon with his own fame, right? Like, the introduction to Daedalus Diggle is someone who's like, oh, my God, you're so famous, like, comes to shake his hand mm -hmm. or whatever the situation is. And so he's trying to deal with all this. And the first teacher he meets, he's, he's kind of curious. Like, oh, what, what do you teach? And then this guy gives you, if I'm a new wizard, this has all happened in the last six hours. 
that I found out I'm a wizard, all this shit is happening, and I get there, and the first kind of person of authority that I know for sure is going to be teaching me about this world is Quirrell. I don't know if I get real confident about this whole school system I'm about to walk into. No, and it's it, he's such a funny character. I guess not funny given that he ends up being the villain. Spoilers. But, yeah, it's supposed to be Defense Against the Dark Arts, and he seems so skittish. But then you also get Hagrid, who, in Harry's eyes, is the absolute authority on the wizarding world right now. And he lets you know that he used to be a different kind of guy until he took a year sabbatical, and then something real weird happened to him in the forest. And nobody can figure out what it is except for three 11-year-olds. There's nobody... <laughs> Nobody else can do this forensic investigation. Like and, the, nobody, and I bet he didn't even wear a turban before either. No, the he definitely he just not, I don't think he's wearing a turban in this scene. I think the turban happens between Diagon Alley and Hogwarts. Oh. I, 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 I could be wrong about that. I think in this scene that... I don't think it matters as much insofar as he definitely did not always wear a turban. So yeah. Yeah, maybe I maybe my timeline is messed up. I uh I thought that was when he like, you know, got the little parasite Voldemort on the back of his head, but maybe it was between then and I don't even think it matters. I think your point still stands that Yeah. Like <laughs> someone should have noticed and figured this problem out cuz it is weird yeah. for like a mid a middle-aged man to just rock up with a turban all of a sudden. I think that would be there's some should yeah. be some alarm bells going off. It's like, yeah, I went to Romania and this is my new thing now. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. Yeah. It, oh, what are those called in like South America where you just wander into the forest and do a bunch of LSD and you just trip out for like a week? Oh, like spirit journey. Yeah, spirit journeys. They have a name though. I imagine that's what happened to him. He went on a spirit journey, and, and now, just came now back, like stuttery turban. with a turban. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Iowaka retreats? That's that's ringing a bell. Is that what it's called? Iowaka. I could be wrong. Someone from South America will correct me, I'm sure. But yeah, they're I'm like... I got basic math wrong today, so I won't be the authority on anything. Yeah. Um, do you have any more notes on the Leaky Cauldron? There's not a lot here, but I love what we get. Uh, my only one is... <sighs> Tom is just such a regular dude in this first book. And it just makes me so much more upset that in the third movie, I think it is, they make him so weird. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched the third movie in a hot minute. Yeah, I I do like a yearly rewatch of the movies with my family. And I probably read the reread the books less often. But it always just strikes me. They did Tom so dirty. Justice what what is Tom. your done dirty tier? How, how dirty did they do Tom compared to like Ginny? Okay, well, Tom was like a pretty regular dude in the books, and then they made him kind of Quasimodo-y in the movies. Sure. I, I'm just trying to recall this. I just think now, yeah. that, now that you've introduced the done dirty scale, there's a lot of characters uh, that get done dirty. I'm just trying to figure okay. out where Tom gets put in. I would put, yeah, I guess Tom would get put, I guess pretty low on the done dirty scale because we don't know too much about Tom to say whether or not um, that physical change really affected the rest of his character, but Ginny, they just kind of murdered, <laughs> slaughtered, stabbed several times. <laughs> yeah, Ginny it was, was Caesar-esque, you might say. Yeah, a two, Harry. Yeah. Okay. Um. 
Yeah, I think he's described as a toothless walnut in this, in the book. That could be wrong. I didn't write down that oh. description, but I, I seem to recall Flattering. he was described as a Tom the Toothless Walnut is kind of oh. how. I don't even know what that means. Oh, Harry, that's not a very nice thing to think about people. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to Google that. I think that's the right description. Um, I think that's it for the Leaky Cauldron, though. I think the only other thing is that this is the first time Harry kind of has to deal with his fame. And it's going to go in like little bits and pieces of a roller coaster ride. In Leaky Cauldron, there's a lot of kind of people coming up to him and, oh, it's Harry Potter. And then he meets Draco later. He doesn't know it's Draco. And then this guy has no idea who he is. Um, and so he's just chatting about how racist he is or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. And um, later, then, then, yeah, then you get to the train and everyone knows who he is and the sorting hat and everyone knows who he is. So this is, this is kind of that first moment um, where Harry gets that which which leads to his self-doubt at the end of the chapter that he doesn't know anything or when draco's describing quidditch or anything um so this the leaky cauldron is just a really good setup for all of that doubt that's going to sneak in the next couple of chapters mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And i do think it's important though that hagrid is there with him because everything is new but he has kind of this rock in hagrid so that he can kind of anchor himself to that and it's only really once i think we lose hagrid and he starts getting on the train talking to people that he starts to kind of deal with it on his own. Right. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> That's all good. I, this might be my favorite part of the chapter. Maybe my favorite part of this book actually is the brick tapping entrance to Diagon Alley. To me as oh, a yeah. kid, it, what makes this magical world work is that it, it's, it's described enough that you get it, but indescript enough that you're not asking like, what are the rules of magic? And so Something like this brick wall tapping thing is perfect, isn't it? Isn't it feels just magical. It's like, okay, these magic people can like use an umbrella, tap a brick wall, and they can go to this alley they need to go to, right? And I don't have any yeah. questions about how that works. However, mm -hmm. using a wall and kind of like the platform nine and three quarters works in a very similar way, it makes the magical world feel like it's kind of just on the other side of the wall. Like if you're an 11 year old, like walking around the streets of London. Right. Oh, you're tapping bricks. You're yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, it's magical in the sense that I have no idea how it works and they're going through brick walls and shit. But it's so non-magical in the sense that it's just a brick wall. Like that's a very muggle-ish thing. Like you're just going to go to an alley. You're going to go and look at a brick wall. Like it doesn't feel very special, but it, it kind of helps ground the wizarding world in a world that I'm familiar with, which, which makes it easier to absorb all of the stuff I'm about to learn. And it made it so uh, inviting. Right. Because because you want to think when you're that young that maybe there is a Diagon Alley in your city just behind a brick wall somewhere and you just haven't been able to find it. Right. Or, it or, of, or you just can't access it, but it's there. Like, you kind of just know it's there, but you're not a wizard, so... Yeah, and... And I, I still remember, like, if I close my eyes, I can see that shot in the movie where the bricks open. Right, yeah. And I didn't know what I wanted it to look like, but it was so magical the first time I saw that. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It's such a, it's such a small choice, like, but how, how, you, how you work with thresholds in stories is very important. And JK is mm -hmm. just really good at choosing her thresholds well. And I think the brick wall and the the another brick wall at platform nine and three quarters yeah. it's a bit duplicative but it, it really works in a way that it makes the story just feel like it's just over there like it's happening around you and you're kind of part of it 
you just can't access it in the same way. Exactly. I agree. Perfect. We're moving on to Gringotts. Gringotts is fascinating. I have some problems with Gringotts, but I also have some things I really like about Gringotts. So we're going to work through all of it. Harry wished he had eight more eyes. I put me too. That's exactly how I feel. The descriptions <laughs> of the description, <laughs> the descriptions <laughs> of Gringotts, they kind of just give you this big, I almost get like a temple vibe. Like it's, I guess maybe I'm colored by how it looks in the movie. Yeah, like palatial. Um, yeah, right? Like, it's just, it kind of feels like a big marble. I don't know. It, it, it For the one, these wizards only have one bank, I guess. And Such a bad idea. It's a terrible idea, but it really works as, like, it kind of works like the White House. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a symbol that just sits in the middle of this alley. And the way it's described really works for me in that sense. Like, Big Ben yeah. as well. Like, Big Ben is, like, a symbol or the Statue of Liberty. Like, it's just there and massive. And just exists, and I really like that. Yeah, and it's just... I think it's important for it to seem so imposing because it is the one bank. If you're a wizard in England, sorry if you live, like, in North England. Right, yeah. But your one bank is in London. Yeah. Yeah, what does, suppose- does Gringotts have ATMs? Do we have, like, in Scotland, do you have, like, around Hogsmeade? How do people in Hogsmeade get their cash? Just, like, ATMs full of wizard gold? Yeah, I don't know how it would work. It seems like a terrible idea. Yeah, I have no idea. And then also, the logistics of carrying wizard currency around must be a nightmare. Like, unless you've got one of, like, Hermione's little bags that can carry everything kind of weightlessly. Right. Imagine you're just like, oh, I need to go buy a magical couch. I better make sure (laughs) that I have enough pocket room for, like, 30 pounds of gold coins. Right. I've, I've never thought about the weight of it. It's in it's so heavy. <laughs> right, like cash. I guess there was a time, like even like 1800 or 1750, where there's just only coins. There just was no cash. Yeah. And then also the inefficiency of only having three denominations of cash. You only have the galleon, the sickle, and the nut. And let's see if I can remember. There are 17 sickles in a galleon and 29 nuts in a sickle. So right. if you want something that costs half a sickle, you're carrying like 15 bronze coins That's, Right. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. I'd never thought about it as an actual exercise of carrying the shit around. Just on the face of it, what the fuck is going on? There are there are a number of different ways to kind of divide numbers in a way that makes sense. Our world in real life is chosen 10, right? Most things are divisible mm-hmm. by 10, just as a matter of principle. There's some, I can't remember what it's called or why it's important. There's some mathematical way of doing this instead where things are divisible by 12 to give you kind of more precise options in some way. I've never heard of this system, though. Like, I kind of feel like JK was like, how can I just fuck up the money to make it seem... It's just supposed to feel bizarre. Yeah, to make it seem... Like, this is an example of, I think, kind of like mailing it in, right? It's like, how do I make this money magical instead of just not? And I'm going to just make it so nonsensical to to add up and then hagrid has the gall to say that's simple really yeah how could you not know this harry there are 17 sickles yeah how harry i know you just found out you were a wizard i know i just gave you like the birds and the bees chat about being a wizard but how do you not know about this sickle galleon stuff oh yeah how is this foreign to you but also hagrid complains about 
muggle money at the start of this chapter. He's like, this is very confusing and not straightforward at all. And I'm like, Hagrid, you know you're about to explain these dumbass points <laughs> to this kid. Yeah, he- the gall. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gringotts is also very imposing. I'm going to do my best impression of the kind of Gringotts motto because this shit as an 11-year-old is wild. Like, this terrified me. And then when you hear about the break-in later, you're like, oh, my God. Like, this guy really put himself out there. Here's how the Gringotts motto goes in my best Jim Dale impression. Enter stranger, but take heed. Of what awaits the sin of greed? For those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned, beware, of finding more than treasure there. That is imposing. That is perfect writing. Imposing AF, I think, as the kids say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, (laughs) they, they, They spell it out like that. Yeah. Like, perfect writing. I can't... The, later on, when I do the Hogwarts, the Sorting Hat one, you know, she kind of mails it in on the Slytherins, right? Everything else okay. flows beautifully and rhymes, and the Slytherin one is a little off. This is word perfect for coming up with something that is sufficiently imposing so that you know you do not want to try and rob this bank, because that's important, but also not so specific that it ruins the magic, Right? Because, like, finding more than treasure there, that could be anything. And Harry will ask questions later about it, but I think it's just a word-perfect kind of scary... It could just be additional treasure. Who yeah. Knows? Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. If you if you make it past and steal, we'll give you more stuff. We'll just give you more. There's a prize. Right. But what I, I just find it so funny, though, like, that is the privilege of being the only bank in an economy, is that instead of trying to lure customers and try to keep business, you could just put a threat right on your front door (laughs) and people will still do business with you right and we like the ministry of magic is not good at laws we we learn about this later for other things but like you're allowed to just suck people through a door and leave them there for a decade that's wild you're allowed to abandon muggles on a rock it's anarchy that's it's complete chaos it it is (laughs) shocking actually that the wizarding world doesn't cave i think it helps that there's only thousands of them I think if there were hundreds of thousands or millions of wizards, the whole system would shut down immediately. The logistical nightmare. Yeah, absolute logistical nightmare. And uh, you can't it, get into the infrastructure of a wizard government when no. you're writing a book for a 10-year-old. No, absolutely not. I okay, I, I'm gonna have a little bit of a problem with Gringotts here. It's a problem I'm going to have with JK a lot, specifically post-Harry Potter, but um, during okay. Harry Potter, I just want to talk about the goblins really, really quick. And whenever Connor gets a chance to talk about the goblins, I know he has feelings about the goblins, so I'll keep it quick. Um, J.K. is not the only author to do this. I think fantasy as a genre is very, very prone to this. However, the goblins are just really poor Jewish caricatures, and that just sucks. On a, on a reread as an adult, it just really sucks to get those like first readings of the goblins. I'm like, oh, no. And I understand that she's pulling it from goblin lore, from other books, and that it's not just her. But just as a genre, I just wish fantasy would do a little better. It's a whole creative magic world. You're making all this shit up. Why can't you just make goblins different? You know what I mean? I don't know. I feel that. I also, I will say, from my perspective, like as a, as a Jewish woman, I didn't get that so much when I was a kid. I see it more now when I read it back, and it is a little disappointing. 
But on first read, I think, because I was so already entrenched in fantasy, I just, it made sense to me that the goblins would run the bank. Right, because that's, that's what it's like in most stories. Like, yeah, yeah it's not, JK's not inventing goblins or anything. Right, but she's also just not changing her goblins, and that's always kind of bugged me a little bit. But this yeah, is the it's a one this is lazy the one time where you don't want to make any changes when there's clearly some room for improvement. Yeah, I, I do find in general her analogies when she does try to make them or her kind of connections to the real world when she chooses to use them, they can be a little clumsy, a little ham handed. I think it's supposed to make it easier to see if you're a younger reader. But looking back on it, it's like, okay, come on, you could have maybe thrown in some nuance here or made a just change a or right because it's just to me it's just a magical made-up world and i just the, like these moments are the ones where i'm like just make something up you could do anything here right like especially because mm-hmm. now i guess at the time when you write this book you didn't know it this would be the introduction to goblins for most people now right like you are coming yeah. to this story reading about goblins or elves or whatever is in this story and then you're going to another story and kind of taking that knowledge with you, which I guess was the opposite. Anyway, we don't need to dwell on it. I just wanted to bring it up just so I don't get a bunch of emails about it. But yeah, the goblin description as an adult, kind of disappointing. Otherwise, yeah. though, Griphook is in the story, which is crazy. Oh, Griphook. We love Griphook. Yeah. Well, and I and I think it's it's one of those things that you already said. It's it's when you work into the future of a novel and you need a specific character, you look back at who you've already introduced. And so when JK had to go and find a goblin, she's like, we've already met Griphook. We've had rapport with Griphook. And she brings him back. Absolutely. Really it's cool. it's like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's just different from foreshadowing, right? Like yeah. this is specifically like, you don't write Griphook in book one here, knowing in book seven, like, ah, I got, I need a goblin to do this Gringotts heist. Right. No, but it takes a certain level of care for, like, I think, your own world building to just go back and remember that you have introduced a goblin already, so you don't have to just make up a new one. Absolutely. I, I think it's expertly done. I think she's the best mm-hmm. author I've read at doing that, at really making sure she's not introducing new things if she doesn't have to, and just mm-hmm. kind of living in the world that's already been explored. And it adds, like, it adds a real natural sense to the world building that you're kind of mm-hmm. learning things as you need to and not just because. And I, I find it really helpful because it helps the books not be too long as well. Like this book Absolutely. is rather short. Oh yeah. Like we got to the sorting hat chapter and I was like, are we halfway through the book? Yeah. We like, we get almost halfway through the book as he gets to Hogwarts, which is insane to me. Yeah. I read it in under four hours on my Kindle. Like it's a yeah, tiny, it's... tiny time. I read it after I read an Outlander book, which is like 45 hours. Oh, <laughs> and God. so it was a very much like a, uh, a snap experience when i was rereading this for the for the podcast yeah i'm trying to get through the witcher right now and to go from that like dense narrative that's like barely connected chronologically to this such a different experience yeah and yet it doesn't feel lacking at all it's wild it's really good writing uh gringotts has a bunch of cool stuff for us we get the the you wrote notes about how funny is it about our hagrid struggling on the cart but wanting a dragon I think that's a cool yeah. connection. Um, so the cart is is pretty funny. We get the 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 threats about the 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 vaults and how you'll be sucked through them. And no mention about the burning and du- duplicating charms, but that's cool when we get introduced to them. Yeah, Gringotts is sounds at least at this moment it, it sounds like a super secure, very threatening place. Somewhere I'd be confident keeping my yeah. money actually. 
Yeah, it, it, it maintains this level of mystery, which I think is really important, because when we do eventually revisit Gringotts, it doesn't feel like we're going over territory we've already covered. Yeah, Harry? We know we, yeah, we know we get here, we know there's more to see, but we don't get to see it, we just leave for six books. <laughs> for a while um, for a while at some point later bill like gets harry's money out of gringotts which i have all kinds of questions about that like how does that yeah. work like Is i have there papers on yeah like did harry oh. sign him onto the account that's a separate thing for book four a little bit away from that but yeah yeah uh harry is fucking rich rachel harry has He's lots so of money. rich i we have some questions you uh, your question's the funniest so i'll let you ask yours first Okay, so I'm getting to the point now where I'm trying to like save for my future and learn how to invest. And I'm learning the importance of like not just having an amount of money sit stagnant in an account for years because your money needs to, and I'm putting up air quotes, work for you. Right. Yeah. My question is just like, does Gringotts offer any interest? Is there a compound interest? Do you do you gain anything from just having your money sit in the vault? Is there a wizard stock market? Is there a wizard? Also, who you... was managing Harry's estate for for eleven years? Has it just been sitting there? And and like Dumbledore had the key. Did he know if there was like any version of wizard Facebook he could like buy some shares in so Harry's wealth would increase exponentially? Or has it just been sitting there? I don't know. Hello friends, Editing Bradley here, and I'm sure you're just as enthused as we are about trying to figure out what's been going on with Harry's estate for the last 11 years. However, I would like to pop in here and let you know that we have a few places online you can hang out with us outside of this podcast. We have a Twitter account where you can make sure you get notified about new episodes and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of deep dives going on all the time, and the Twitter account is the right place to be to kind of manage all of them. Obviously, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it and leave it a really good review if you are enjoying it. That would be super helpful in spreading the word and getting this podcast out to more people. We also have a Facebook group in the show notes that you should join if you want to come and hang out with us. Uh, I'm in there. Connor's in there. We have a great time in that Facebook group and we chat about all kinds of things. So feel free to head over to that Facebook group. There's also a Patreon. If you want to do a little value for value exchange, you throw a few galleons our way, you get early access to the podcast, access to our show notes and things like that. That information is in the description below and is also very helpful for us. Otherwise, I think that that is it. Let's get back to talking about wizard banking. I, I don't know. I don't, now I'm stuck on what would the <laughs> what would be sold on the wizard stock market? Like what? Like Florian Fortis use ice cream shop? Like are we buying shares in ice cream? Like what wizard? Uh, against you gotta buy Nimbus shares. Yeah, shares they come in out Nimbus. with a new model every year. Right? Yeah, Nimbus shares are crazy. Um, but, then, but then, but then though, the firebolt comes in. So you need you would have needed to sell on the 2001. When Malfoy boy Malfoy Malfoy buys like seven of them, that would have been the high point. Yeah, then you dump then and you then dump. you go full in on Firebolt. <laughs> and then you wait until book six and try to convince um Fred and George to go public with their company instead of Yeah, Harry equity. Harry does a poor job later of negotiating a stake in that company. <laughs> he he because then they give him his own products that he paid for as a birthday gift and i always wonder why he didn't go like for a one percent gratuity or something like just something man he's 15 he doesn't know what gratuities are they don't do tipping in england 
That is true. They don't do tipping in England. I have some questions about the money as well, separate from the interest in stock market <laughs> considerations. I want to know, Lily and James die at 21 years old. They finish mm-hmm. Hogwarts at 17 years old. Mm-hmm. What do they do? This is either money they earned in three and a half years of wizarding work, or it's money just passed down from James's family, because Lily's family isn't giving any wizard money to anyone. Okay, actually, I have the answer to this one. I wish I remembered more of the details, but this is generational wealth. Oh, okay, so passed James's down. Parents, yeah, James's parents had a business. Gotcha. And so James inherited that wealth. Um, not sure what happened to James's parents. Yeah, they got dragon pox. I remember that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't remember that. But uh, they had a business or something, and it was really successful. And then James inherited that wealth. And then I guess when you die to an evil wizard when you're 21, you don't have a big chance to spend much of it. That's true. That is right. They bought their house in Godric's Hollow in cash, obviously. And, oh, yeah. and then that's it. That yeah. Ex- What's the logistics of getting enough gold to buy a house? Do you just like order a truck so that it can drive all of the galleons to the previous owner of the oh, house? No, 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 no. Because everything's in Gringotts, remember? It just needs to go from one vault to the other. Like everything mm, happens in Gringotts. I think you're just moving it to someone else's Gringotts account, and then it's up to them to take it out if they want it. That's how oh, I'm gonna. I've never account. thought about this till right now, but that's how I'm assuming that works. How like, she house? How much does a house cost in galleons? So many galleons. in this economy, like a billion. <laughs> in this like in 2022, far too much, and it's so totally much, going up. and so much more than it did in 1991 or whenever mm. this book is set, 1989 or whatever. Um, and my last problem with this money is simply that he's going to stare at this giant stack of gold. Uh, he's never going to spend any of it. And exactly zero of it goes to the Weasley family in all seven books. None of it. He gets Ron some omnioculars, and that is about it. And so I'm, oh. I'm going to keep pointing out that Harry gives none of this money to the Weasleys. And that's, oh, well, he gives a thousand of it to the twins. That's the, that is the, that is the Goblet of Fire winnings. And that's specifically because money. he doesn't want it. Because Fudge, like, comes in and throws it on his bed and won't acknowledge yeah. that the Dark Lord is back. So he just gives that to the twins. That's a separate transaction. But Harry- it's still his money. I know. I'm just going to point out the multiple times on this podcast where the Weasleys, like, in number two, or in book two, when Lockhart has, like, seven books that each kid needs to buy, his act of kindness is giving his free set to Ginny. So you could just, for 0.000, or, like, Ron's dress robes is another example. Or Ron's broken wand. Like, why don't we just, why doesn't Harry just mail into, like, hey, I'll give you a couple of sickles for a wand, Ron, so you don't have but to... I think- We've disagreed about this before, though. I think over whiskeys and wine. Have we? Uh, I don't know. I bring this up often. Yeah, it really bugs me. Because my take on it is that the Weasleys are too proud. And Harry does what he can where he can. But obviously, like, when he's at Hogwarts, he's not just, like, throwing around money. There's not really much to spend money on. Oh, you're right. We have argued about deal. this over yeah. whiskeys and wine. Because my response to that is <laughs> Harry can just do some shit anonymously. Right, like he can just anonymously, like, like just write to Ollivanders and be like, hey, just, just, just send any one, like the cheapest one, just like a non-broken one will do, okay, and then so just have, and then I... have the owl like bring it in. So you think if an owl came with an unmarked wand for Ron, 
after Ron had complained to Harry that his wand was broken and he couldn't get a new one, you think that Ron would be able to figure that out and chew Harry out. I'm going to go with no for the sake of my own argument <laughs> and the fact that I don't want to cede any ground on this. I'm going to, in my mm. head canon, Ron, Ron is not always the attentive kind or the attentive type. Sometimes he is. I mean, he did miss Hermione being into him for how many books? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's a rough patch yeah. in book four. Anyways, we don't need to spend half an hour on this money. <laughs> <laughs> but but I have some problems with this giant stack of cash that just, just simply does not get used for the entirety of these seven yeah. books. It might just be an easy way to say Harry never has to worry about the logistics of affording to go to Hogwarts. That's exactly what it is. Like, it's just to let us know that, okay, Harry's not going to struggle with this. So his struggles are going to be with Voldemort instead. Yeah. Yeah. And just it's rich boy problems. It also, it stops it from being duplicative when Ron has those struggles. It'd be super lame if every character had money problems. Like, it's nicer when every character has a different set of issues. Exactly. That yeah. they're trying and to work through diversity. and they cover each other's weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so we're done at Gringotts. That was exciting. Um, lots of money, lots of threats. Uh, Hagrid gets some super secret stuff there, but we'll learn more about that later. I think we can kind of bring that up um, once that happens later about the I'm little. I'm sure it'll. I'm sure it'll come yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet you it will. We didn't. We <laughs> didn't stop off at that vault for for no reason. Um, also, like H Hagrid wanting a dragon. Is that coming back up? Who even knows? Who knows? It's just such an offhanded comment. Also, the the. Uh, the admission that there is a dragon in Gringotts and you're just like, oh, okay, another offhanded comment until there's actually a dragon in Gringotts. And it lives up that. to the hype too. It doesn't yeah. fuck around. Um, we move out of Gringotts and head to, where are we heading to next? Is it Ollivander's? No, 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 no. It's no, the rope shop. It's Madame Malkin's. Malkins. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't label this in my notes properly. Okay. I have like the scenes labeled, so I know in order of where we're going. And I did not. Okay, so we're at Madame Malkin's now. And this is where Hagrid just decides, you know what? We've been to one place. I think I can leave this 11-year-old to Rome. Wherever he's going to go, whatever he's going to do, I think it's super cool to do this. So Harry goes to Madame Malkin's and gets fitted for robes and meets uh, a shithead. Not Malfoy yet, but a shithead. And he's I have a some random guy. Just a random guy. And he sucks. He's terrible. Sucks a lot. He, I forgot how much he sucked the first time you met him. Yeah, and it works in two ways. Because A, like, it's helpful as a kid to just know you're going to have like an 11-year-old villain character, right? You need mm -hmm. you need someone who's a more consistent threat on a page-by-page -page basis than just mm -hmm. the, the, the Dark Lord who's going to wait till the end of every school year to strike. <laughs> you I'll need, consider it, my bad. Yeah, you need someone to... <laughs> to be a little more of an ongoing problem for a protagonist in, in a story. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, this guy is straight up like he, he dunks on the rules of like first years, not allowing brooms and in a very clever bit of foreshadowing, actually says it would be like a crime if he wasn't picked for the Quidditch team, kind of setting us up mm -hmm. for Harry getting picked for that role. He dunks on uh, Muggleborns and how he doesn't want them to attend Hogwarts. And I, there's a lot there. I think it's also important to kind of note that at some point Malfoy is kind of responsible for his own actions. Uh, however, it's a good bit of when we meet Narcissa and Lucius later, it's a good bit of kind of nature versus nurture piece of this Absolutely. book. Like how much of this 11 year old kid is saying this just because his parents say it and he doesn't know any better. And how much of it is 
these are things an 11 year old can truly believe Malfoy mm-hmm. will not get an arc that, that ends up being satisfying, but he ends up being slightly more nuanced by the end. But it is interesting as an adult reading this book to kind of think about how much of this is Malfoy. Just- yeah, and I think it is funny. Like, there are a few times where Malfoy says something, like, particularly, like, even in this intro, something quite off-color. But he usually phrases it in the sense of, like, my father has told me this. And right, so you're like, exactly. okay, you're kind of like an entitled piece of shit that thinks that, you know, you deserve the world just for showing up. But maybe you don't think that about yourself. Maybe that's what you were told. Yeah, and it's just interesting I, to think about. Because later, like, at some point, Malfoy is going to be responsible for his own actions. Yeah, but it's it's not yet. I don't think it's yet. But it's interesting to track that over time and kind of see where we end up, kind of book yeah, by book with him. I will say this conversation with Draco has... It was kind of my first reminder of how dry and how funny Harry is. My room is going off. I hope you can't hear it. (laughs) I can definitely hear the rumor. That's funny. (laughs) But so Draco asks, you know, my parents are off doing this. Where are your parents? And Harry just, he's 11 years old. And he turns to Draco and he's like, they're dead. And it's like, okay. Great social skills, Harry. Get to to know him first, dude. (laughs) That's true. I never thought about that. He kind of just goes in. I think he probably gets the sense that he already doesn't like this kid. But yeah. Yeah, well, he says he didn't didn't want to say more. He didn't feel like getting into it. But there are other ways to say, like, oh, you know, like, they died a couple years. No, they're dead. Yeah, that's really funny. How very dare you. Harry's good at that. That that becomes a a, a character trait. Just dry, kind of one-line humor the what is it the you don't have to call me sir professor one from book six comes up there's a few of them like yeah, that, that are just yeah. really really funny yeah and i think the the movies don't do quite as good a job of it because i think they have a lot of other stuff they have to do with harry's character other than have him be his own comedic relief but he is quite a funny guy he is and funny. even at 11 you know he's got a good sense of how to control a conversation, which I just thought was really funny yeah. in this scene. The other thing about Madame Malkins that I find that just is kind of written really well is just throughout this kind of in the background, the, the situation is that they're being fitted for ropes, right? Mm-hmm. Like a very like bespoke style tailoring situation is happening where these 11 year olds are kind of having Madame Malkin like pinch them and sew stuff and measure stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's a very customized experience. Um, mm-hmm. And then later on the Hogwarts Express, or just before it, um, we're going to talk about the Weasleys and how Percy's the only one that gets new robes because he's a prefect, but everyone else kind of has hand-me-downs or they've shuffled them around the family mm-hmm. or whatever. And so it's just a it's a nice way to kind of introduce the Weasley situation to us without overdoing it. Putting Harry in this yeah. situation with Malfoy where they're getting like a very custom, bespoke, tailored set of robes versus like a small offhand comment later uh, gives us all the world building we need about the Weasleys without slamming it in our face and taking away from the, the next chapter. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's just one of those things that JK does well again is telling us something without beating it into us. Yeah. It's just there for us to see as opposed to shoving it in our faces. Yeah, there's also some Hufflepuff slander. Now, neither of us are Hufflepuff, so this is fine. We can move on. But just if you are a Hufflepuff out there, I flagged it for you, just so you know that I've acknowledged that Malfoy and Hagrid dunk on the Hufflepuffs here. Which is so sad, because Hufflepuff is just, I feel like, uncontestedly the nicest group of people. 
absolutely it's it's very much a nice it's very much like a like a nice guys finish last type of thing for them i put hufflepuffs like pretty high on the done dirty scale if we're gonna go back to that (laughs) okay okay so we have we have um uh tom from he's pretty low and then Ginny's above that somewhere but we're not really at Ginny yet and then Hufflepuffs, they're already done pretty dirty. And it's chapter four or five or whatever this it's is. It's got to be near the top because it's not even like a deliberate act of like, of shooting them down. It's just straight up neglect. Like you've got four, <laughs> JK's got these four houses, these four children. She's like, oh, Gryffindor, you're perfect. You're beautiful. Oh, Ravenclaw, you're so smart. I love you. Oh, Slytherin, you're so ambitious. You'll succeed. Hi, Hufflepuff. You live near the and kitchen. <laughs> Yeah, like, come on. You get to eat the food quicker. Yeah. And they're such an interesting group of people, but I, I guess maybe just not the time or the care went in to make sure that we understood how neat they were. Right. I think I think part of the problem is Hufflepuff is just kind of not more nuanced, like, on the face of it, but it's just, like, for if you're an 11-year-old reading this... You don't want to be like the kind. So kid. yeah, yeah, right. So you have the the good guys, the bad guys, the really smart people. If we're just breaking it down to just the the very stereotypical kind of top line, yeah, the good guys, the bad guys, the smart people, and then like hey, these people are all right. Some some chill dudes. There's, yeah, right. Like, and you just don't want to be a chill dude. I don't think. I think. I think it's. A, <laughs> I think here it's fine. I think it's kind of a crime that at no other point Hufflepuffs get a redeeming moment other than Cedric Diggory. Yeah. Who gets murdered mm-hmm. right away? Right? Like, <laughs> I feel like when I was eleven, I didn't appreciate the chill people for what they were. Now that I'm a little older, thirty-two, if you do my very incorrect math at the yeah. start of the episode, uh, you appreciate the chill people so much more. Absolutely. And the people who like, they're like, "Oh, I'm so brave. Let's go on an adventure without any planning." I'm like, "Nah, nah, nah. You need to, you need to chill out." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, from there we go, so we leave Madame Elkins and Hagrid's back, which is crazy that he ever left, uh, Harry. And I believe this is where Hagrid starts like dunking on the, the Slytherins a little bit. Is this, uh, sorry, I might have this out of order. I think this is where Hagrid talks to Harry about, it doesn't really matter. It's in this chapter somewhere, um, about Slytherins. And I find this fascinating reading this as an adult because, in the space of two chapters, we're going to get Harry on the sorting hat, um, kind of wishing mm-hmm. to not be in Slytherin, right? And mm-hmm. the the reasons for that, there's only two of them. One is that he meets Malfoy again on the Hogwarts Express, and he says he's going to be in Slytherin. And so mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be with Malfoy. And that's a pretty, like, that's a very 11-year-old thing mm-hmm. to me. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't like that kid. I don't want to hang out with him. Fair enough. But then this next one is interesting. It's kind of the reverse Malfoy scenario in the sense that his prejudice against Slytherin has mostly come from Hagrid saying that all of the dark wizards ever have come from... a wizard who went bad wasn't in Slytherin. Right. Which is... It's it's interesting because most people just kind of read by that. But if I am upset with the Malfoys for kind of putting all this prejudice against Muggle-born students into, into Draco then I should probably be equally upset that Hagrid is just taking one of the houses and immediately telling Harry that they're not even worth the time Although, being in it. Like, it's weird to me that this happens. But, but does it become less weird if you remember that a Slytherin got Hagrid expelled? 
No, I don't think it. Sorry, I guess it's not weird that Hagrid's doing this. I guess I just I'm just trying to figure out in my head how much do I feel like it's fair for Hagrid to just immediately kind of dump his pre. Yeah, I think this might be more of a the story driving the character because somehow Harry has to find out that he doesn't want to be in Slytherin. Right. And the only way he's going to find out it because no one's going to talk to talk to him about Voldemort. Um, is that Hagrid's going to tell him that Voldemort was in Slytherin. And then he also has his own negative experiences uh, with Slytherins. Although, that was another question I had, which is a bit of a slight tangent. Does Hagrid know that Tom Riddle is Voldemort? This is ridiculous. The answer is probably no. So, Dumbledore knows this information. And yet, Mm -hmm. in book two, like, one of Ron's detentions is going to be, like, polish the head student amazing award for Tom Riddle. Like, it doesn't actually matter in this story which characters know this or not, because it doesn't affect anything. It's it's It bothers me so much in book two. But yeah, I'm going to assume that Hagrid yeah. either knows or doesn't know, but if he does, it doesn't matter, because the characters yeah. who do know, it doesn't seem to affect... Like, like, it, like literally, like, why did we get rid of that Tom Riddle award? Does that need polishing? Do we really want to no. clean that one? But it's just so weird to me that Tom Riddle, a.k.a. Voldemort, just straight up got Hagrid expelled, and I don't think he knows. Yeah, it's weird. I don't understand how that works, really. How like more people... I feel like if I feel like if I were Hagrid and I found out that the legit Dark Lord got me kicked out of school for his murder rampage, I'd probably want to appeal that expulsion. Seems a little unfair, man. It's definitely unfair. I don't think anyone's going to argue with you about whether Hagrid being expelled is unfair. I'm just saying, in this world where, like, Tom Riddle and Voldemort and them being the same person, and somehow nobody knows this, but even the people that do know it seem to not give a shit because they keep all of his awards and medals just around for people to polish on detention. Like, I just think, I just think in this story, the characters, the characters just know or don't know, depending on what fits. Yeah, definitely not as important as I'm making it out to be, but I was reading it here and I was like, wait, does he know? He doesn't know. I don't think so. But my argument is that even if he did, it just would not matter. It's still inappropriate to be harping on an entire group of people to an 11-year-old. Yeah, I think I think Slytherin's <laughs> big problem is is more of a branding issue. Like, I think there's something about the culture. Sorry. Like, even if good people... Even if you're, like, one of the good guys and you're going into Slytherin, there's something about the culture that just kind of grinds away at you. Hmm. Over I'm a regular ti- Slytherin, I'm a cool Slytherin. Over time, and I think I think that specific problem is not helped by people like Hagrid, who no, just tell tell eleven year olds like in the first ten things they know about the magic world. But yeah, these Slytherins suck, dude. Like you do yeah, not. And it's, it's and it's like this is a group of like eleven to seventeen year olds. Like you stop being sorted into houses once you become an adult. If I were judged on my actions when I was a teen, I don't know. I don't want to know what house I'd have been in. Uh, yeah, no, I'm in the fuckhead house. Like, there's, there's Gryffindor, <laughs> Slytherin, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and the fuckheads. And you get to be over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I would have <laughs> landed solidly in there with you. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, we go to Ollivander's. Now, mm-hmm. Ollivander's is magically creepy in the best way. Ollivander is kind of weird, more so in the movie than the books, but in the books too. He's kind of weird. I find it weird, kind of like Gringotts, and I think this is just because eleven-year-olds, and it is you're just in one alley. But like, there's one wand maker. Like, if you want a wand 
in this area in in Great Britain, you have to go to Ollivanders. The mon- monopoly. Monopolies are crazy in this world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's no infrastructure. Everything yeah. is anarchy. Yeah, it's also super convenient that Ollivander just can remember everybody's wand. Like this, this kind of immense ability to remember things couldn't have been used for anything else. Like this is the one application of this kind of godlike yeah. memory. That you got is, a perfect photographic memory. Maybe you should like sell ones right, in yeah. the visual equivalent of a shoe shop. Like it reminds me of a shoe store, just the way that everything is like stored in boxes in the walls. Yeah, the it's real life. You. I went to the one in California, the Harry Potter. It's not as good as the one in Florida, but the Ollivanders mm-hmm. there, like they keep the boxes in the shop, like all kind of messed up and out of order and kind of leaning on each other, mm-hmm. kind of like the real Ollivanders. Like, it's not a nice and neat place to go into. It's a very, mm-hmm. like, a it's a chaotic, messy, or kind of, I guess, like, a lawful messy kind of setup <laughs> to it. That's really, really cool. Um, we learn here that the wand chooses the wizard, which is very, 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 very important. And also, mm-hmm. another just cool bit of magic, that this kind of inanimate object has a soul or has opinions or you know what i mean like there's something there and i just think that's cool yeah and i think it, it ties to i don't know for those of you who are like really really deep into it with me and pottermore and you do your wand test and then you can like click on the articles to find out more about what each one means like the type of wood that it speaks to your personality the the core speaks to kind of who you are and what you're vulnerable to and if you're receptive to change and then the i can't remember what the length um answers to that might just be a logistic thing like how long is your arm how long should your one be that's true <laughs> yeah that's interesting i think yeah What's fun about the wands here, too, is just from a writing point of view, in five chapters, JK has immensely improved some of her kind of magical creations. In in chapter one, we get the put-outer, which is going to be kind of slyly renamed or not so subtly renamed in book seven (laughs) to something cooler. But going from the put-outer, which I'm going to classify as like completely mailing in the name of that thing or just Mm -hmm. deciding that naming it something absolutely dumb was important so kids could understand what it did. Like, it puts mm-hmm. out the lights. Like, that is a terrible bit of naming. And then moving yeah. to unicorn hairs, phoenix feathers, dragon heartstrings is so cool. Like, those are cool items to be put into a wand. And so the creativity here has immensely improved over four chapters. Yeah, and it's just so... It, it creates... It helps build the universe, I guess, that... You don't even know if unicorns and dragons and phoenixes are real in the universe until all of a sudden, well, I guess dragons, you know. But then you go into the wand store and there are all these options and you just learn more quietly. Like phoenixes are real and they exist and you can use their tail feathers and wands. Yeah. But also there's like magical properties to them. Like they're each different in the way that like there again you never learn this explicitly which is what makes it cool but there's some way that the type of wood interacts with the magic of the core and then with the wizard or witch that makes you good at specific things like i just like that whole magical ethos of the wand it's taking something that's this is an example kind of unlike the gobbins where, where jk takes something that exists in kind of lore before her books 
like wizards having a magic wand, but really mm-hmm. kind of changes it up a little bit to be way cooler than I thought of going into these books for the first time. It definitely gives it a lot more plot significance, especially, you know, uh, the brother of Harry's wand. Is it a brother? What's the... Sister wand, a cousin wand. It ends up like, in terms of the actual world, it's kind of like the drunk uncle wand. In the sense Mm. that like, you kind of want nothing to do with it. It's related. But you're not happy about it. You're not happy about it. And (laughs) yeah, if you were like at a wedding, you wouldn't want it to show up. Hmm. I always wonder if Dumbledore knew that their wands were the same. Or they have the same core. Must have. Well, it's his phoenix that gives the feathers. I'm sure he did. Yeah, because I, cause I, I, I always just wonder when Dumbledore figured out that Harry was a Horcrux. Because there are all these kind of hints that I can see now. But when I was uh, reading them for the first time, obviously I didn't even know Horcruxes, Horcruxes existed. But now it's cool just seeing all the clues. Absolutely. Ollivander... Actually, I want to talk about wands quickly, just about the wands themselves. Because I actually have a little bit of a problem here. And this is only a problem that happens... Because I've read all the books and because we're doing a spoiler podcast. However, when we're introduced to the wands here, we're introduced to like some wands being good at specific types of magic. Like, mm-hmm. ooh, that's a good wand. Or it's when he's talking about like which wand Lily and James each had. Like, ooh, that's yeah. good for a specific thing. That one's good for transfiguration. That one was good for charm work. And that just never comes up again. And that really bums me out on a reread that. I wish somewhere, like, someone in the story would have been really good at charms. And then someone just with an offhand comment would be like, well, of course, she has a, a U wand with a, you know what I mean? I, I, it just kind of, it just kind of sucks for me that they introduced that little bit of wand lore. And it never really comes back again. Because I could see so many situations where you write, like, a fight scene where someone's not using their own wand. And it not being oh. their own wand is important, but also someone who's really good at transfiguration all of a sudden kind of has to default to charms because that's what the wand is better at. And I think that I just there's to me there's a really cool scene somewhere in the books that doesn't exist where this could have been exploited more. Yeah, and I think we see a little bit in the seventh book when Harry's phoenix feather wand breaks. I think we see him struggle with forget whose wand he has initially eventually he has draco's wand um he we see him struggle with trying to do the magic that he can normally do but it speaks more to his lack of connection with the wand itself right yeah so it's more of a wholesale lack of connection instead of oh shit i've got i've got a you know like a a cedar wand now i gotta <laughs> gotta be really good at now hexes. i gotta work on yeah now i gotta work on my freaking yeah Anyway, just a small something. little bit that has always kind of bugged me. I just wish that was explored slightly more. Because um, it is really cool. And those of you that haven't like read up your wand biography on Pottermore, it's very, very worth it. It's just a short little paragraph. It's like, I can't remember what cool. I got. I took it at Ollivander's in California. Like They have it set up on tablets or whatever. Mm. And so you can kind of take it there. I can't remember. What's your Patronus? My Patronus is a white stallion. That's fucking cool. Mine's an aardvark. <laughs> it's just less cool. So yours is Arthur, and mine is that really angry horse from Tangled. Yeah, mine. I'm not <laughs> upset about mine. I feel like I feel like there is a world in which I am best, kind of you know, projected into animal form as an aardvark. It's just when you're doing the when you're doing the the test on Pottermore and there's like a lion or a stag or a tiger and you're like an aardvark, you have yeah. to you have to sit with that for ten minutes before you can accept it. 
Yeah, like, I remember being, like, kind of happy that Lincoln White Stallion is, like, pretty neat. But then my friend took it at the same time as me, and she got a unicorn. And I was like, this is bullcrap. Yeah, that's cool. I wanted a unicorn. Yeah, it's that would be a bomb, Patronus. Right. Um, back at Ollivander's. <laughs> I love this podcast. He's <laughs> on so many tangents about nothing related to the chapter. Uh, yeah. Back at Ollivander's, you have some really cool notes just about the book and the movies. There's about how cool this testing scene is where Harry's testing all the wands. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the, the scenes I think that translated really, really well because one of the like the tone balances that's so successful in the books and I think is successful in the first few movies, maybe not so much later is this balance between like this heavy, serious magic and this whimsical feeling of, you know, exploring a whole new magical world. So yeah, you know, you have the brother wand of the wand that killed your parents, but at the same time, you've never seen this magic before and there's the ridiculousness of like blowing up a shelf or <laughs> you know like yeah just like breaking a lamp or something and then all of a sudden you find that perfect wand and it feels so good and so right and and it's just such a nice balance for me because it's on the backdrop of something that is quite sad and quite serious but you are there with Harry and feeling that it's a really special moment uh, uh, in his life I've always tried to figure out what is the real world like muggle equivalent of like, like getting something on that just feels absolutely right. And I always like thought it was like getting that perfect pair of jeans. Like there's lots of jeans that feel good and you'll buy them. But when you get a pair of jeans that fits perfectly, that is just on another level of incredible. That's the only thing I can think of that's like a real world analogy for how it might feel Mine's a little more specific but for those of you that ever did ballet if you've ever tried on point shoes yeah i'm out on this one yeah it's so every so i'll just try and make it relatable as i can but everyone has different feet right and point shoes if you wear them wrong it's you're gonna break your toes you're gonna cut your toes you're gonna get calluses you're gonna bleed it's gonna be miserable but there is a style of shoe that's built for your style of foot and once you find the right one, that's really the only type of shoe that you can use. And um, it's possible to do point on shoes that aren't the best suited for your foot, but it just works so much better if you find that right fit. I wish I could have like a more applicable analogy for everyone, but that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> yeah, jeans and point shoes. Feel free to tweet us your analogy. If you're listening to this, what is your real world analogy for just like, like I can, I can relate to like a cup of coffee. Like sometimes there's just a cup of coffee mm. that it just hits perfectly. Like mm-hmm. you wake up and then just like the amount of coffee and the style of coffee based on how tired you were just hits perfectly. I don't know. Oh, Anyways, you find that like perfect pen that writes just. The oh right yeah, the pen. Yeah. I, I'm left-handed too, <laughs> so like a pen that won't smudge when I oh, write. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's the one I'm going with as a left-handed person. A pen that doesn't smudge. And it has that good like writing feel, so it kind of just glides across the paper. Yeah. Uh, such a good feeling. So good. I still want you to tweet us your analogies, though. That's still mandatory. All right. Yes. I think it's a really good choice here to have Harry not need to perform any specific magic. The idea, it really helps cement the idea that the wand chooses the wizard, and it has nothing to do with the wizard's capabilities. That, like, someone who's completely untrained, who has no idea what he's doing, who's just, like, accidentally blowing up shelves and whatever it is, um 
that that that's enough magic by just like existing that that's enough for the one to kind of make a determination i think really helps kind of stabilize this idea that the wand chooses the wizard but also the fact that Ollivander and expert can can figure out right away like harry's not testing these wands for 10 minutes at a time each casting a variety yeah. of different spells and like there's no like metrics or analytics happening it's very much like he gets it in his hand something blows up and you just know it's not correct i think the way this whole scene is set up is really good for cementing that in our brains about how the wands really work how the wands work and giving them an air of importance yeah and I've... then i always laugh when i see the movie and he blows up a shelf and all of like well not that one <laughs> and also in the movie where he finds the right one and it's like the cinematographer just decided to like this was the whole budget you have like the wind you have the you have the fans in the back blowing at harry's hair there's like lights underneath his feet shining right up in his face yeah he's like, this you, you is my oscar moment you might as well have like a halo and like a oh sound like it's <laughs> yes, it's exactly. so funny when he finds the right wand in the movie and it's just so obvious they spent their entire budget for that scene on the props they needed for the yeah. kind of halo effect yeah it, it is it gets the point across very solidly though i got it <laughs> yeah and olivander too kind of figuring out that voldemort's kind of sister wand um there's only two of them with the it's not the only two phoenix feather wands but the only two wands with phoenix feather cores from the same phoenix right like so these two feathers are from the same phoenix and the idea that he's describing voldemort as terrible but great i find fascinating as an adult the idea that the idea that i i actually think like a lot of the real world just struggles with nuance a lot of the time that things always just default to having to be black or white and that yeah. kind of doing like having a nuanced opinion is just harder in a lot especially in like an online world but i like this because it's a very nuanced opinion you can acknowledge how terrible the dude is or was i guess in this case um but also just how good at magic he was and him using the magic to just murder people is kind of separate from how good he was at it and i like that little bit of nuance and harry potter kind of expertly does nuance in children's storytelling they make the bad guys mm. really obvious to you but there's a little bit of nuance there in, a, in terms of how they're kind of made as an allegory to real world problems and yeah. and i think this is a really nice bit of nuance to kind of show that harry potter insofar as that it does do a lot of black and white stuff and all the bad guys are kind of ugly their poly juice tastes bad they wear you know super black robes and masks and stuff and they're all in slytherin um getting these little bits of nuance i, I really enjoy yeah and i think it's also just like a little hopeful note for harry right at the end because he is so worried about being bad he doesn't want to be like voldemort he gets that little crumb of hope that it's like yeah he was terrible but with this wand you could be great that's true that is true it is a good pump up for the 11 year old who just got a sister wand to the one that murdered his parents and he's aware of it like he know you yeah. just told him that yeah just i wonder at the the wisdom of telling him that <laughs> <But> <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, Ollivander's just out to lunch with that choice. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, all, all he does is wands. It's just wands. No social skills, no yeah. discretion, just wands. Yeah. And to him, in terms of like wand lore, that's probably very important. Right. Oh, he probably wrote that in his wand diary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's probably there. Like when I sell, like it's kind of like an if then. If I sell this wand, make sure that person knows how terrible but great it could be. <laughs> Make sure them no Voldemort had the other one. <laughs> Hope you're having a great day. Thanks for coming to my place of business. 
uh, that's related to a murder weapon. Right. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than Ollivander being a little weird and, and creepy, I think that's mostly everything that happens at Ollivander's shop. Um, and then finally, and doing this a little bit out of order, I think, but we get Hedwig. You have more notes on Hedwig than I do. But Hedwig's, oh, in the, Hedwig's here. Yeah, I love I love Hedwig so much. I think Hedwig does a lot for Harry in terms of being a symbol of freedom, first of all. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think JK is the first author in history to use birds as a symbol of freedom. Um, but it's also like his first like real present from his first real friend. And it's so Hedwig is so many firsts for Harry and it's just so exciting. And I guess she doesn't even have a name at this point, but I guess I find like Hagrid gifting Hedwig to Harry as Harry, as Hagrid kind of solidifying himself as like Harry's bridge to the wizarding world. Cause he's like through Hedwig, you can reach me. You can send letters to your friends that you will eventually make. You can, you have open communication now and you're never going to be isolated in that muggle world again. And so I always found them really nice. There's something about the color of Hedwig too. Like just as a snowy white owl. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Like there's a lot of uh, Game of Thrones tried to play with this in its final season a little bit. There's a lot of like lore and kind of storytelling about white horses and what they represent. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about like, there's something pure about Hedwig being like a snowy owl, right? Kind of. Yeah. I, there's just something about that that's always been like like pure, pure and friendly to me. Yeah, and I think you know Harriet at the same time is very similar to Hedwig, like fresh, new, completely like unaffected by the wizarding world so far he's looking at it with completely clean eyes and you've got this whitest snow owl here and i think kind of symbolically i guess they're they're on a level together yeah yeah i I completely agree i think i just think there's something about hedwig's description that adds to it because it could have just been like a barn owl yeah. Right. Because like, I mean, here's a dusty colored barn owl, and that just would have been less. Like I don't know what specifically it is, but I think yeah, it's not the color white and like how pure and kind of clean that sounds, mm-hmm. and how that and matches just, with Harry. Yeah, there's something about it for sure. And so distinct and special, and I don't know. Let me know if you guys agree, but I don't think I really valued Hedwig in the story until we lost her. Oh, I, I think, think absolutely. I would... Yeah, it, and it wasn't until she died that I realized, like, he's he's an adult now. I can't. He, this is real. He's losing things. He's losing, you know, his first concrete connection to the wizarding world, and now he's got to forge ahead alone. When he lost Hedwig, so now when he gets her, and she's this brilliant white snowy owl. And they're kind of going on this journey together. It makes me more nostalgic, and I'm gonna look for more Hedwig references as we go forward. Perfect. Uh, I would be crazy to end this chapter without briefly talking about some of the other animal options you get at Hogwarts. <laughs> this is the chapter we we meet a lot of them later, but this is the chapter that has the list where we learn about what animal options are, and it's just worth going through them because you have owls, fucking cool and magical, mm-hmm. right? I know you got cats, I think. Cats are cool. Yep. Love a cat. Mm-hmm. Right? Not as magical, but... Still a predator. Still, so yeah, cool. yeah, cats are cool. 
then you have toads who apparently at one point were in fashion like i could, the only thing i could think of like if your dorm has a fruit fly issue that is the only time a toad would be ideal otherwise like who's... i do love the implication that at any point toads were in fashion yeah, it, that's canon in the book at some point toads were in fashion by proxy of being told they went out of fashion like yeah. at some point that was the weird i don't know some really like attractive seventh year triwizard tournament winner type of person must have had a toad that was mm. super helpful to their ascent to glory or something because i can't wrap my head around it yeah i i like i imagine they always tie back into like old stories so maybe it's thinking back to like the princess and the frog so everyone was like oh that happened that was actually a real wizard story and now we all want frogs just in case that is that true on my scale to too i am not giving frogs enough credit for being magical they're very much like a magical lore kind of animal mm -hmm. but you're right though it is like predator of the sky predator of the ground toad toad <laughs> <laughs> but also like there's just like like, like even just with at, at hogwarts the infrastructure has an opinion too there's an owlery right yeah there's an owlery for the owls cats you can just let run around like that's what cats do you wouldn't want to yeah. have like a place for the cats or else that's not a cool. cattery yeah you don't want that <laughs> right but then like where's the aquarium i've never heard of this like toads well, just i don't know it's do they, do they need a terrarium that's too specific we don't need to get into the maintenance of toads Right, but the books do, don't do that either. Like, Hogwarts doesn't have a place for you to put your toad while you're in class, so it doesn't stay out of water for too long. There's just too many questions yeah. about the toads. Maybe maybe if they were an aquarium, Neville would stop losing Trevor. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But also, follow-up question, why is Ron allowed to bring a rat? That's There's not no on the list. There's no the rules. It's, we already know. The Wizarding World is in complete anarchy. It is, because that list is very specific. And also, the name tags never come up again. All the robes are meant to have name tags. That's so dorky. But for, like, like just the first Why? years, or, like, everyone... I don't know, it was weird. Like, but there's, but there's only, like, 40 new students a year, so, like, why? Yeah, it's just... <laughs> Just yeah. put some great power in and you'll learn everyone's name. Yeah, it's no, that, that whole list is an absolute mess. But yeah, every time I read this and then Ron's allowed to bring a rat, I'm like, wait a second. One of two things happened. JK forgot to go back and add a rat to the list. Or the Weasleys get a pass simply for not being able to afford a different animal. In which case, why isn't that part of the tuition? I just have so many questions about this animal situation. Maybe the rat used to be allowed Oh, that's like a grandfather Charlie. rule? Yeah, you can get you can grandfather your rats in because I think they said that Charlie had him, right? Yeah, because so like, yeah, so it would have well, been... We, what we like, know a, now that it's like a human masquerading as a rat, so obviously he's an incredibly long lifespan. Yeah. So maybe like the rule is don't just abandon your pet if you still have this abnormally old rat, bring him along. Right, yeah, maybe, maybe it's the grandfathering abandonment clause in the Hogwarts contract. <laughs> really deep down there along with poltergeists are allowed right that's true as well all right let's get to the chapter winners it is very okay. much like this podcast to spend an hour and a half on one chapter <laughs> <laughs> i just looked at the time and i was like oh god oh god is that how long it's been <laughs> we've done it again that's perfect it's absolutely perfect that's the whole point of it's called let's dive deep now let's do 20 minutes you know what i mean um chapter winners I, I went, so you might not be caught up as to who my previous chapter winners are. I haven't picked Harry at all yet. This okay. is my first Harry Potter pick. I There's a lot going on here. I like your pick as well. 
Harry Potter for me wins this chapter. He is not only the character, the protagonist, kind of getting his call to adventure, accepting it, all of that stuff that happens in like a hero's journey type of thing. Um, he's being, he's also just written as the perfect avatar for me as a reader so that I can get all this information without like a big exposition dump, which actually the next chapter does a little less well with like the cart of exposition. (laughs) This chapter is an expertly written chapter and Harry's really well written here to be an avatar without feeling like, like it's too much. And I just, I'm going to pick Harry Potter for all of the reasons. And I think. I would absolutely agree with your reasons, but I don't want to just double up and say that it's also Harry. Harry was pretty badass in this chapter. I'm still not over him just telling Draco his parents are dead. <laughs> that was unreal. Uh, but my chapter winner for this chapter is it has to be Hedwig. It's the first real concrete living thing that Harry can have with him to remind him that, you know, it wasn't a dream. It's not, it's actually real. He's going to get to go to Hogwarts and he won't be isolated again. So I think Hedwig just represents a lot of hope for Harry. And that's why I have to pick her for this chapter. Yeah. Oh, and just so you know that these are being like tracked on a spreadsheet and stuff. So by the end of the whole, the reason why we're doing this is because I'm not convinced that Harry Potter wins Harry Potter. Mm, That's why we're the the whole thing is a meme because I want to try and figure out does Harry Potter win the most amount of chapters in the Harry Potter series? Because he's no one's favorite character. I've never heard anyone like, who's your favorite Harry Potter character? And they just instantly go Harry Potter. Right? So I want to track that on a different scale of like if you had to chapter by chapter pick a winner, Mm. would that also scale with your final opinion? Oh, you're gonna get annoyed at my winner for the next chapter. No, it's okay. That's okay. No, no, it's all good. That's the point, though, is people are just picking what you want. Um, we also do a winner for kind of, you know, not a character, something unliving, like a place, a thing, a concept, a theme. There's lots of cool shit in the magical world that just isn't living. Uh, and my and my winner for this one is discovery. Um, mostly because of the reasons I picked Harry Potter as the winner. The exposition here is just done so well that the exposition just comes across as discovery. Uh, We're discovering lots of cool stuff. Harry's discovering lots of cool stuff. Um, And it it never feels overwhelming or confusing or too expository. And I just just vibe with it. It's a great chapter. Yeah, I think, and we're very much getting similar themes from this chapter because my, I guess, winner for theme was independence. So I think... From the start of the book to now, even though it's only 50 pages, we've seen Harry be extremely reactive to things that happen around him. He doesn't really take a lot of agency because he doesn't have a lot of agency. And this is the first time that he's really been put in a position to do even little things on his own. Like, yeah, it's absolutely nuts for Hagrid to just ditch him at Madame Malkin's. Crazy. But at the same time, he doesn't get to shape that interaction with Draco if Hagrid's there and you see him kind of get that sense on his own that maybe Draco isn't a guy that he wants to hang around. Um, And then he also, you know, gets to figure out what he wants to do with his wand and then he meets Hedwig and it's all about how, maybe not all about, but you get to see how Harry starts making his own choices a little bit for the first time, I think for him. Absolutely. It's a great pick. So your winners, you, you remember if you're listening, I go to Twitter and Gmail and stuff and let us know who your winners are. Uh, we got Harry Potter and Hedwig 
winning the kind of living entity category. Then I have Discovery and Independence winning the the more kind of nebulous category uh, for winners. That is going to do it for, for Chapter 5. Hopefully you guys listening along are having a great old time. And we will be back for Chapter 6, which is the journey from Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. We will be back at you next week with chapter number six, The Journey from Platform Nine and Three Quarters. This episode was written, edited, produced, all of the things by Bradley Kanag. And I would like to do a special thank you here for Rachel, who kind of graciously stepped in for this one. That was very, very kind of her. And I think she did an amazing job. And I love chatting with her about Harry Potter for an hour and a half. That was really fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you do all the normal things like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast feed where you're listening to it check out the twitter the facebook the patreon i think that's it though i think that's all thank you so much for listening and we will see you in the next one